One of the challenges of speaking on the second day is you notice our energy levels start to decline, but uh, I trust God will help me, uh, me to preach and you to listen. I do have a number of quotes today. They will come up on the screen, but I've also got notes for you to take away. So there's some notes over here. I thought about giving them out in the beginning, but I thought, yeah, I know what you'll do. You'll start looking through. You'll see where I'm going. You won't be listening to me. You'll be looking at what notes are coming up, what's coming up. So I thought maybe it's better to do it afterwards. God sent a church. Are you on? Am I on? Right, where's your... I can't. Oh, you're on? I am now. I didn't do anything. <laughs> okay. I remember some years ago sitting... Uh, on a church platform in quite a large gathering of people. And I was sitting there with some other leaders on the platform and our visiting speaker came along, sat next to me and he said, Pete, how's the church doing? What, what's the church like? What's it, what's it doing? And as I stopped and thought about that question, I know what was in his mind is probably, are we growing? Do we have wonderful meetings, etc." But my attention went to the people. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, John was doing, John's doing really great. His faith is growing. He's doing really well. Mary, she's been struggling. And, and Maureen, she's, she's got a bit of a sickness. And obviously, there were about 400 people in the meeting. I couldn't go through every one. But at the point that I was trying to make is, how do you see the church? How do you view the church? Do you view the church as Grace Church Incorporated or Grace Church Limited or whatever? We're the church. You're the church. The church is bigger than us, Christ Church, but this part of this sheepfold, this part of the church is you guys. It's not us as the organization. Very often I hear people talk about, they might complain about the church. Oh, the church should do this and the church. Why don't the church do this? What they're really saying is, why don't Matt and I do it? Or why don't Matt and I organise it? So often we fall into, do you see the point? We fall into talking about the church in this kind of corporate sense rather than see us as individuals. And some of the things I think sometimes when people say, why couldn't we do? I, I kind of think, yes, why couldn't you do? You know, it's not, the church is not just about Matt and I and a few other leaders. We're really talking, when we talk about a God-centered church, we're really talking about God centering, God being central in our lives, not just this corporation. You see, your life, my life, will together determine how, how centered God is in our church life. Blackaby says, everyone's life is a center. Our center is the hub around which all Decisions revolve. For some, survival is the hub from morning until night. For others, the acquisition of wealth or material good drives daily choices. In many Western cultures, the centre of life is a pleasure-seeking gained through entertainment and sexual deviations of every sort. But a God-centred life, a God-centred life, is one that revolves around the character of God. Decisions are made from within that centre, based upon that which pleases or displeases God. The centre of our lives, our God-centredness in our life is, is where does God 
fit with our decisions and the things that we, we focus on, how we view things. Do we so often pick up uh, our papers or we, perhaps you don't read papers anymore, it's only on the internet or on television, and, and suddenly embrace a thinking of the world. Asking God, but what does God think about this? It's being God-centered, a fine line, but distinct line exists between being God-centered and being religion-centered. Many religion-centered people think that their lives revolve around God, when in truth, they are enslaved by a religious system. Neither being church-centered nor being activity-centered could substitute for being God-centered. And really, to, in order to differentiate between a God-centered person and a religious-centered life, it helps to know the difference between the two. If you, if you believe, as I think most people in this room will believe themselves to be Christians, born again by the Spirit of God, then ask, answer these or consider these questions. Do I live with the vague, uneasy feeling that God is continually displeased with me? I meet people pastorally and they feel that. Do I often find myself exhausted and defeated in trying to live a Christian life? Do I secretly judge others who are not as actively engaged as I am in church or charity work? Do I believe there to be a clear distinction between the sacred and the secular as it pertains to daily life? Do I consider religious-looking activities a means by which I can gain God's favour? If my religion slackens, what is my motivation to resume it? Is it guilt? Is it fear? Or a desire for more of God? You see, these, these questions, these things are, will reveal kind of just where God is at the centre. Is he at the centre of our lives? If guilt or fear is a motivator for any Christian-based activity, you may have a religion-centred life. So let's look at what a God-centred life looks like. Now, I've got, I've got five points, and uh, each point could be a sermon in itself. So I've tried, tried to condense down to some things that I think would help us. God-centred life is a Christ-centred life. It's Christ-centred. The church is the bride of Christ. We have been bought with the blood of Christ. We're no, lo no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. We're Christ. Everything that we have centers around him. He is the source of everything. It starts with an understanding that the source of who we are is Christ. He created us and he bought us. He owns us. He has given us gifts and talents. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith, our life, and that every blessing comes from him. We stand this morning as we've worshipped, we stand before a holy God, and we stand in a righteousness that is found in Christ. He has clothed us with his righteousness. And the scriptures tell us that we have everything for godly living. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Then secondly, what does this Christ-centred life look like? 
A Christ-centered life is motivated by a relationship with Christ and motivated to live like Christ. It's both. Having a relationship with Christ and being motivated by, motivated to live like Christ. To grow, to be more like him through the means of progressive sanctification. We are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. There's a progression in our sanctification. When you got saved, you were forgiven of sin. No longer sin had dominion over you. But did you stop sinning? If anybody thinks here they've stopped sinning, come and talk to me afterwards. We'll have a chat. We still sin. Very often we don't realise just how much we sin. But a heart that's Christ-centred has a desire to grow. And it's, it's not kind of just where you're at now. It's your motivation. What are you looking to do? Are you wanting to grow to be more like Jesus? Or are you very passive about it? It's not where you're at. We're all at different stages. And thirdly, for, for the Christ-centred life, there is one ultimate ambition. That is that in all things, Christ gets the glory. All things, Christ gets the glory. It's not that we can't have personal goals. We can. But it's Christ's glory that sets the foundation and the direction of those goals. Yes, we can have goals. That's not. But where is the foundation? Where is it rooted in? Where is it set in? Where's the direction? Is it found in Christ? Is it, is it his glory that we live for? You know, Jerry Bridges says, I haven't got this in my notes, so, but just thinking as I was saying, Jerry Bridges says, on the day we get saved to the day we die, we're never more accepted. So what are we living for in that, the already and the not yet? expression you know we've already saved and we're not yet fully into in, into glory we live for his glory because if i live just to please him i won't just for that i won't i won't gain more acceptance yes i can please god sure and he'll be pleased but when i live for his glory that's what motivates us a Christ-centered life is more than just getting our ticket to heaven. So I've just said we live between the already and the not yet. And a Christ-centered life lives with that sure and certain hope in the here and now. Because Christ has promised to be with us and give us grace until we go to be with him. Again, I love the line in the song. And I, I it came and shared it because I think this, in the song that we will slay our sin. How? What did the lion say? By grace. We try and slay our sin. I try and slay my sin by effort so often. Trying to just, just be better, trying to, just to, to be more like Jesus in my own strength. And we don't pray to, to God to say, remove the sin, because that would be wrong, because we don't, it's not his responsibility, but we can say, Lord, would you give us grace to help us put this sin to death? So I love that, that line in that song this morning. And a Christ-centered life is, is a, a thanksgiving life. It's a life of thanksgiving, not complaining. It's a life that lives in the knowledge that we've been reconciled to the Father 
1 Thessalonians 16, 18. Rejoice always. This, this text just tells us, sometimes we wonder what the will of God is for our lives. Look at this text. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul knew that at the very heart of a Christ-centered life was a thanksgiving life, a life of constant praise. A.W. Tozer wrote that the goal of every Christian should be, a lot, uh, to, is, should be to live in a state of unbroken worship. He's saying that's the goal. I haven't achieved that. <laughs> but that's the goal. And the God-centered or Christ-centered person finds this a delightful goal. It's not something we put ourselves down with because we haven't attained to it, but it's something that we desire to grow in. Because God-centered people are not self-centered. God-centered people pay less attention to the applause of this world because their motivation is the anticipation of the hearing the words, well done, well done. I can't really kind of understand I might have shared this with you before, but I can't really understand how there are no tears in heaven and reconcile that if I don't get my well done. <laughs> because that's what I want to live for, that well done, good and faithful servant. When this life is over, Matthew 25, 21, 23. Christ-centered people, their focus is on becoming more like Jesus rather than acquiring fame and fortune for themselves. Now that's a very challenging set of things. I'm sure you'd agree with me. And there are many things that contend for the center stage in our hearts. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ accepts us and forgives us even when he's not at the center. Even when he's not at the center, even when sometimes, you know, we, Christ could be far away from us. If we're his, he still loves us. We're still in the center of his, his life. Our lives are hidden in Christ. So that's the good news of the, of the gospel. Secondly, a God-centered life is a cross-centered life. D.A. Carson writes, I fear the cross without ever being disowned is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. Saying here that the cross needs to be central. The cross, for many years as a Christian, I, know, I, I knew about the cross, but the cross wasn't central. The cross wasn't something that I focused on. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul says, He resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Having a cross-centered life, to, to, to have that focus, that I'll, I'll boast, I'm going to boast in anything, I'll boast in Jesus and I'll boast in him and his work on the cross. Just put down some of the symptoms that not living, that could be true of us of not living a cross-centered life. First of all, lacking in joy. 
You find yourself lacking in joy. It could be a symptom of not living a cross-centered life. Not growing in spiritual maturity. Not finding that desire to be more and more like Jesus. A love for God that lacks passion. Little expression. There's, in, you know, God, we said the other week when we were talking about, uh, about uh, joyfully singing saints. You know, the Bible's full of expressions of joy, expressions of love, expressions of passion for God. And then finally, also in this, this section, looking for new truths, looking for new practices, looking for experiences. You know, a number of years ago, we had the Toronto experience, some of you might know, but all sorts of things happened as a result of that. And people were chasing experience. Cross-centered. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, reminding them that what is of first importance is Christ died for our sins. What is of first importance this morning amongst us? That Christ died for your sin and my sin. And so the challenge is how do we, how do we spend enough time meditating on the cross, preaching, Jerry Bridges encourages us to preach the gospel to ourselves daily refreshing our minds and our hearts of what our Saviour accomplished on the cross. Realising just what Jesus accomplished for us. I'm amazed that I was saved in the beginning. I'm even more amazed that having been saved, Jesus still loves me when I've lived the life I've lived. And so many times I've failed him. Refreshing our minds on what Christ did on the cross. The more we understand our sin and how deep our sin runs, the more we will understand grace. Grace gets bigger. The cross gets bigger. The atonement gets bigger as we understand. And so often we think our, our growth is, is that we sin less. Our growth should become more aware of how much we sin. And that then turns our hearts towards great love for God and great appreciation of the cross. To spend time looking at the agony he suffered in physical pain. But the biggest agony, the biggest thing that Jesus suffered on the cross for you and I was his own father turning his back on him his own father, crushing him, pouring out his wrath. That relationship that had existed, that intimate relationship with the father and son from eternity past was now broken. But Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was, it was, it was the key point. It's the most significant point. We, we can so easily think of the, the physical things that they did. He was scourged, he was whipped, he was crowned of thorns, which was... Not very pleasant. All the things are now to a cross. And yet the, the most significant thing was his, his broken relationship with his father, which he'd never known. That he poured his wrath out on his son. And God was satisfied that the justice for our sin had been met. And he did it all for you and me. He did it for you and me. 
David Pryor says we never move on from the cross of Christ, but only a more profound understanding of the cross. John Stott writes this in The Cross of Christ, that to live under the cross means that every aspect of the Christian community's life is shaped and coloured by it. The cross needs to be central. In our singing, can I say, I don't think we should have a morning where we don't sing on Sunday the cross, about the cross. The cross. The words of a hymn by John Newton sum up our part and our rescue in the cross. And I want to read this hymn, if I can. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame and fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid, languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my fears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, we, the Lord, have slain. We put him on the cross. Our sins put him on the cross. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayst live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet by, yet live by him I killed. We live because he died. Spiritually, we have new new creations in Christ. Living close to the cross. Each day, focusing on the cross. If you, if you each day preach the gospel to yourself, you cannot preach the gospel to yourself without preaching the cross. The cross is front and centre. Secondly, a God-centred life is a gospel-centred life. I think that might be point three. <laughs> Jerry Bridges writes, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message of all history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. Just to go on from that with Paul Tripp, he says thousands and thousands of sincere believers have a huge hole right smack in the middle of their gospel. They tend to see the gospel as a thing of the past and a thing of the future. An entrance thing and an exit thing. Exit thing being when we die, just so we're clear what the exit is. Since, sure, they celebrate the forgiveness 
they've been given. And they're welcome into God's family. And they look with hope to the future when they will be with the Lord forever. But they don't understand. So many of us, Kisang, Christians, don't understand the radical, mind-changing, life-altering nowism of the gospel. They don't grasp that when they come to Christ, it wasn't just their past and their future that changed. No, everything in their lives, right here, right now, changed. A gospel, a God-centered life is a gospel-centered life. Living daily, freshly aware of the gospel. A deep grasp of the gospel means that every time we sin, every time depravity in our life is revealed afresh, we will run to the cross. We will run to the cross in repentance and receive fresh forgiveness and fresh faith. Fresh grace. I find the cross is the place when I sin, I go to first. Because I find the cross is the place where I'm reminded afresh of what Jesus has done for me. A gospel-centered life is constantly aware of the need of grace. Daily preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding us daily of Christ's work on the cross. And reminding ourselves daily that his mercy is new every morning. My sins of yesterday, wages of sin is death. But I woke this morning. I woke this morning because his mercy is new to me this morning. Being freshly amazed at the amazing grace that has called us and chosen us to be sons and daughters of the living God. Some of the songs we've been singing just are mind-blowing. You stop, think of some of the truths. Christ living and God living is these things, these wonderful truths. As we're aware of God's grace to us, our lives in turn should reflect a tone of character and, and character of grace. A gospel-centered life is a culture of grace. John Piper says the test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. Not just good enough to have the doctrine on paper, but its culture in practice. And that practice means that we're not going to be perfect, but it's how we deal with it when we're not perfect, which is where the gospel comes in. How we deal with the sins of others will help us to see how much we understand the gospel. See, if we're law-based, if we're a law-based Christian, we will respond. When somebody comes and tells us of, of their sin, we will respond in shock and horror. <gasps> How could you do that? How could you ever do that? Well, one thing you just did when you did that, you just revealed your own self-righteousness. However, the person who is aware of the gospel in their own lives will thank the person for their honesty, recognizing God's work in their lives, bringing them to that place of confession. And then drawing them into seeing what the Bible says about how to deal with the sin in the light of the gospel. And then praying with them for God's grace to help them battle with their sin. That's the effect of the gospel. As I said, all these subjects, we can say much more, but we don't have time this morning. But Mike Bournemouth says, gospel truths are specific. Concrete doctrinal implication of the gospel. Whereas gospel conduct is the connection the Bible makes between the gospel and our behavior. 
I wish we had more time, but the gospel, living the gospel, it's functional. It should be functionally played out in our lives. Have we been forgiven, so we forgive. As we have been welcomed, so we welcome. Have we received mercy, so we extend mercy. Have we received grace, so we are to be gracious. In our membership class, we emphasize the two instructions, two great instructions Christ gave to his church, his bride. One, the Great Commission, and secondly, the Great Commandment. So I want us to just briefly look at a God-centered church, being a missional church, thus fulfilling the Great Commission, and being a people-centered church, fulfilling the Great Commandment. What is the Great Commission? This is number four. The Great Commission that we find in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth, to the end of the age. This is the great commission that we've all been given, to go and make disciples. Not necessarily go and make... Be, be evangelists. Not many of us are evangelists, but we can all be ambassadors of Christ, as Paul talks about in Corinthians. And go and making disciples of all nations. Kevin DeYoung writes, the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship and obey Jesus Christ now and in eternity. Why? To the glory of God. The mission of the church is to make worshipping disciples, not for our name. Not that we can say, oh, do you know, Grace Church doubled over the last year, and that would be wonderful. But I trust we wouldn't boast in that. I trust we boast in that would be God working amongst us and us giving him the glory. But this morning, as I went into this, because again, it's a, it's a message in itself, talking about the Great Commission. I just wanted to mention, I mentioned it to Matt, I, I just three observations about a missional church and a missional people. A God-centered missional church doesn't try to win people by being like them. I've heard so many Christians say, well, we need to be like them in the world so that we can relate to them. Well, we need to be able to relate to them. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, our Lord attracted sinners because he was different. They drew near to him because they felt there was something different about him. And the world always expects us to be different. The idea that you're going to win people to the Christian faith by showing them that, after all, you're remarkably like them, is theological theologically and psychologically, a profound blunder. People, people want to do that. People, let's, let's be close to them. Let's, let's get as close as we can without dropping off the ledge into sin. No, we, we have different values. We have different goals. We have different ambitions. And people need to see that we're different. Being different doesn't mean being strange. I don't mean being spooky, Christian, strange, you know. Be normal. You know, look around this room, most, most of you know, no, we're all normal. <laughs> Be normal. 
but be different. Because we're motivated. We have this desire to reach people with the gospel. We want to be a gospel-centered people. Second, these are just three observations I wanted to raise. A God-centered church is not to be driven by entertainment. Now, you might say, well, Pete, where did you get the scriptures for that? Well, actually, I found an interesting scripture about this. And it's back in Ezekiel, would you believe? Wouldn't expect to find perhaps up there. A culture not driven by the need for entertainment. Ezekiel 33, verses 30 to 32 says this. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. They come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. People here are encouraging others to go and hear the celebrity speaker. Who's the celebrity speaker in this? It's Ezekiel. Go and hear the celebrity speak. They wanted to hear him in the same way as if he was a lusty singer or a great mu musical performer. They saw the prophet as not someone speaking to them about their salvation, but as an entertainer. They heard, but they didn't do it. They weren't interested. They were, they were captivated by the kind of, I don't know whether you call it entertainment, but the, the celebrity speaker. And we live in a culture obsessed by entertainment. And we mustn't make the mistake of just putting on a good event by entertaining people. Never making the mistake of substituting ministry for entertainment. We need a culture of evangelism that never sacrifices to the God of entertainment but continues to preach to the needs of people that are only found in the gospel. In these third observations I've got. And I couldn't think of a, another way to present this, so bear with me in this. But a God-centered a God missional church starts in Jerusalem. And before you all go and get, oh, we've got to get a plane ticket. We've got to get out to Jerusalem. That's where it starts. Jesus said, didn't he, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said our witness would begin when he spoke to these, these disciples in Jerusalem, then spread out. Where is your Jerusalem? Where is your Jerusalem? Scripture does talk about the eyes of the fall to the end of the earth, and obviously we need to reach out missions to, to across the world. But where is our, where is mine? Where is your Jerusalem? my neighbourhood, my family, people around me. I want to say to you parents, a number of parents with really young children in here, I know your desire 
I mean, to speak about being a missional church, I know that you have a desire for mission. That's not a problem. But I would, I would encourage you to see your mission field, primarily your children. That's your Jerusalem. Whatever you're doing there, you reach out from there. But that's your Jerusalem. Your neighbourhood could be your Judea and Samaria. But see your children. A prime importance. They need evangelising. And they're in your care. God has given them to you, not for you, but for him and eternity. And we have a responsibility to do all that we can. And I know the challenges of children. I have three of them myself and one of them sitting in the room. But I won't mention anything more about that. But (laughs) I know what it's like for grandchildren. Wonderful they are. That, that's a little easier because you can give them back. I remember some years ago, and I'm not going to mention who it was, but one of my, it wasn't Rach, so she doesn't even worry about it. I, w- I got a call one night, many years ago, by someone in the church, and they needed help. And I said to June and the girls, I said, oh, I better go and see this person. And as I walked out the door, I nearly said her name, this daughter of mine says, Dad, why do you love the church more than us? You can imagine how crushing that is to have your child say that. Now, in one sense, there's a truth. <laughs> Jesus is first and it's his church, but I knew what she meant. I had to adjust that. I had to change that to ensure that the children were priorities. And you could talk to Rachel. She will tell her about all our thoughts and failings, so I'm not standing here saying all our successes. But that particular comment really hit me. Really hit me. And I've seen many pastors, I've seen many leaders who've given themselves to, and people in the church, given themselves out there, out there, out there. And the children are not walking with God. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying if you do this, all your children will work with God. I, if you if you parent, absolutely wonderful. It doesn't mean to say your, your children will walk with God, but it's particularly noticeable when people are out there, out there, and not giving themselves to the homes and families. So often those children don't walk with the Lord. That's our first. So I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying you don't reach out, but you start, that's your Jerusalem. This has gone down. <laughs> Either that I've, or I've grown. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so I need it high because I can't read it. Thanks. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Let's hope we get there. The church is to be the driving force for evangelism. So we need to build into our, our culture of church a desire to reach out, to be missional. For the whole church to be mission-based, missional in our thinking. Not trying to look to who, who again, what, what, is, what is the church doing about mission? My answer, my answer to that is, what are you doing about mission? We're all. Now, there are, in Ephesians 4, we see some who would be given the ministry 
of evangelism as in pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, to train us all how to do witness, how to, how to evangelise. It's for the whole church to evangelise and to be those ambassadors of reconciliation that Paul speaks about, telling the world about Jesus in that part of the world essentially where God has placed you. Now I want to be absolutely clear at this point. I'm, I'm not speaking, I'm not saying the church shouldn't work together, evangelistic events, evangelistic programs, although God can and does bring forth from such events, I do not think evangelistic programs and events are the most effective or the primary means for us to do evangelism. You know, studies being done, 80% of people who come to faith come through personal evangelism. 80%. And do you know what? 95% of people who come to faith come to faith under the age of 21. That's staggering. That's why I love kids' work. I love to see children's work. I encourage some of you, Phil, you could do a children's club on a Wednesday night. We, we want to stand with you and help you, or whatever you want to do. Just saying it hasn't got to be Friday, that's all. Could be any other. But to reach children when they can be reached. Because very few give their lives over the age of 21. And then finally, God-centered people fulfills the great commandment. The great commandment we read in Matthew 22, 35, 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You should love your neighbour as yourself. On these two, these two commandments depend all, it's a staggering statement Jesus makes, all the law and the prophets. Colossians 3 verses 12 to 14. Paul writes this. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, a, comp a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We read this passage. It confronts us with an incredible truth. It confronts us with the fact that our relationships don't belong to us. Our relationships belong to God for his use and his purpose. They're fundamentally about him. And Paul Tripp writes, this passage immediately confronts us with the fact that our relationships don't belong to us. They belong to God for his use, his purpose. We cannot allow ourselves to have an owner's view of our relationships as if they exist for the sole purpose of our happiness. And that means that as a church, as we relate together, we don't leave people out. People who perhaps, you might have to hold this up. <laughs> yeah. uh, people who, who perhaps not like us. 
I don't understand why Matt doesn't like sport like I do. But I still love him. Oh, thanks. <laughs> right, just, I just want to make that clear. No, but we, we're all different. We, have different. we have different things that we love. I love sport. Can't stand anybody who doesn't love sport. Yeah. So much is in the Bible, but we won't go there. But the, 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 the thing is that, that we're different. We're different personalities. And God, let's be clear, God doesn't want to change your personality. God wants to change your character. I did a study once on the disciples. The disciples were very different in personality, but they all desired to follow Jesus. As members one of another, Romans 12.5 says, we have a responsibility to care for one another. The Bible describes our fellowship in concrete terms as actions we do with or for one another. And in caring for one another, we are caring for the bride of Christ. I remember saying to somebody, he asked him to do something, he said, uh, and he did it, and I went to him and I said, oh, thanks for doing that. He said, I didn't do it for you, I did it for Jesus. Which I understand, but it wasn't, kind of, oh, okay. Uh, but it is for the bride of Christ. There's a truth in that. And I've just taken out a sampling, it's in your notes, so you haven't got to write these down, of what we would call the love, another, love one another scriptures. Love one another with brotherly aff affection. They're in the notes and the scriptures are there. See, I'm good. Outdo one another in showing honour. Wow. Outdo one another in showing honour. Live in harmony with one another. Comfort one another. Serve one another. Bear with one another. I mean, Karen has to do that every day. <laughs> Jude more so. Worship God together. Pray for one another. Carry out one another's burdens. Carry one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Confess our sins to one another. But out of this list, I've left out what I think is one of the most important one another's. It was found in our text earlier, in Colossians. Forgiving one another. Forgiving. Jesus talked a lot about forgiveness. To forgive and ask for forgiveness are both costly exercises. All authentic Christian peacemaking exhibits the love and justice and then the pain of the cross. Stott says, unforgiveness is a symptom of gospel amnesia and should be a concern for all of us. If we don't forgive, he's saying, you've forgotten. You've forgotten the gospel. You're not aware of the gospel. And Thomas Watson writes this in the body of divinity. This, this, is not, this goes one step further. We forgive when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. When we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. I didn't. Today. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> I'm not sure these people understand. <laughs> so, 
what a friend we have is Siri. Um, today we're going to break bread as the church family. And as I said just now, one of the things Jesus was most concerned about was forgiveness. Paul gives warning in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, about divisions. About divisions in the Corinthian church. He was concerned about their self-centeredness and their self-righteousness. And Paul warned them that in this significant meal, you know, we've had some great meals. Liz and the work's done a great job. But this is the most significant meal of this weekend. This is the most significant meal. And he is saying that you come together and you do things uh, together. We haven't got time to go into all, but you're not placing the importance on this meal significant enough. This meal, like no other meal, is for us to focus on Christ's work on the cross that is then symbolised in the bread, his body and the wine, the shedding of blood. And Jesus in his, I encourage you to read it, read Jesus' high priestly prayer in, in John 17. In that, in that prayer, he leaves us in no doubt that desire, that he desires that we not only give our lives to the Lord and to God, but also to one another. In verse 29, he warns us that if we don't eat, drink, don't deserve, without discerning the Lord's body, there is judgment. What's the body he's speaking of? The body, his, his, he is speaking of the church. It's also his body, his, his physical body, but the church. That in the church, when we come and break bread, and we're going we're gonna to break from one loaf this morning. Matt and I are going to break it up so that we all feed from the one, symbolising our oneness in Christ. But if we're harbouring things against each other, if there's unforgiveness, then God wants us to deal with it. Now, I've been in meetings where I've said, OK, if you want to deal, deal with that now. I'm not going to say that, but deal with it afterwards. If there's something that you haven't forgiven somebody about, deal with it afterwards. You could deal with it with God now and to the person afterwards. And in breaking bread today, we are ensuring that we have no divisions, no divisions between us, that in honour we prefer one another. Not looking to one another just for our own interests, but the interests of one another. that there is no unforgiveness amongst us. I want to read from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, 17. As we come to now break bread together. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 